Well, good morning. Uh, I mentioned my name is Pastor Dan. It's possible you don't know me. I'm the youth pastor here. Um, But if you're listening to the announcements, apparently that won't be the case for long. Um, uh, No, joyfully, uh, sadly, coming to the very end of my uh, time as youth pastor here, and we'll be transitioning to lead the church plant that we hope to have kind of operating by early, early next year. So it is exciting uh, to be in this transition moment. So do be praying for for Tanner and for ourselves as a church uh, as we consider whether or not he is the right guy to come in and take this youth pastor position. Um, But last Thursday, last Thursday marked 40 days since the resurrection, uh, since the resurrection Sunday, since Easter. Uh, And and Luke tells us in Acts 1-3 that Jesus presented himself alive to his disciples uh, after his suffering by many proofs appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. And it was then on that 40th day that Jesus ascended to heaven. And we got to hear that story narrated uh, during the scripture reading earlier. That was Acts 4, or Acts 1, 4 through 11. It was all about uh, Jesus' ascension. Uh, and so, so last Thursday was Ascension Day. Uh, I'm curious, what did you and your family do to celebrate? I mean, shouldn't we celebrate Ascension Day? More? I don't think we celebrate the day properly. Uh, I mean, the, probably even the fact that I'm bringing it up, it sounds like, oh, that's a cute little thing. Note 40 days. Oh, it had been last, last Thursday. That's an interesting thing to note. Um, but I think we undersell how big of a day Ascension Day is. Or, or let me put it at least this way. Uh, I think our understanding of the significance and the importance of Christ's Ascension is too meager. Uh, it's, it's too diminished. It's too foggy. I'm not really concerned about the day. It's not as if I'm after, like, we need to over-commercialize Ascension Day, right? You can, you can uh, make a big deal out of a day and care less about its meaning, right? You can uh, go all out for Christmas and not believe in the Incarnation. You can buy really nice uh, Easter outfits and, and not believe in the resurrection of the dead. You can spend a whole lot of money on a wedding day and not put much into, you know, the vows and the covenants and the meaning of that day. So I guess I'm not really after, oh, the day needs to become a big deal. My concern isn't about the holiday, but I do want to get us as a church uh, to get a better understanding of Christ's ascension, get it more in line with Scripture's understanding. The Apostle Paul, in his letter to the Ephesians, which we'll be looking at this week and next week, he thinks that Christ's ascension is the biggest of big deals. And it's not that the other holidays surrounding Christ's life aren't important, right? They are. Paul makes a big deal about the fact that Jesus was born of a woman, born under the law, so that's a big deal. Uh, he certainly makes a huge deal of the fact that Jesus died on the cross on what we call Good Friday. He knows that our entire life of faith depends on the fact that Jesus really did rise from the dead, that the grave really is empty like we celebrate on Easter. But if we were to really dig into, say, Ephesians, for example, or anywhere Paul's talking in the New Testament, we'd see that those events, his birth, Jesus' death, Jesus' resurrection, they really lead up to his ascension. Those are all days of preparation for the big one. 
Ascension Day. And Paul really seems to think, and this is what I want us to see, uh, is that we only understand actually our Christian lives if we see how they're connected to Christ's ascension. We are who we are as Christians, as we often talk about, as, by grace, because of grace. We're, we're disciples, we're Christ followers, as an unmerited gift. But each gift has a giver, and each gift given by a giver has an occasion. And the giver, according to our passage today, is Christ. And the occasion, according to our passage today, is his ascension to heaven as victorious king. So this is what we're going to see this morning. We're going to see that the gifts of grace Christ gives us are signs of his victory won on the cross. So you, you will you stand with me while I read Ephesians chapter 4, verses 7 to 10. This will be the start of, a, I guess, a two-part mini-series that we'll do this week and next week, making it all the way through verse 16 next week. But today, I'll just read verses 7 to 10, and then we'll pray together um, based on Psalm 138. But first, Ephesians chapter 4, verses 7 to 10. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. And saying, he ascended, what does it mean but that he had also descended into the lower regions, the earth? He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things. Would you pray with me? Lord, we pray to you. We pray to you, the true God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And we have given you thanks. We do give you thanks with our whole hearts. And it's, it's before all the supposed gods that we have sung your praises this morning. Before the, the idols in our hearts, those false places of security we each are prone to run to, we've praised your name. Before all those in the world who compete for our attention and allegiance and adoration, before all of those idols, before the powers and principalities of the world, we praise your name alone. And we give thanks to you for your steadfast love and faithfulness. We admit none of our false saviors can be marked by steadfast love and faithfulness. The mute idols of the nations, they have no steadfast love and faithfulness to offer. Our political leaders are not full of steadfast love and faithfulness. Our savings accounts and our retirement accounts could never love us back. Our health and our fitness which we rely on so much, they don't have any steadfast love and faithfulness to offer us. Even our greatest gifts, the things that we are so thankful for, like friends and family, are not full of steadfast love and faithfulness like you are. So Lord, we praise you. We give thanks to you, the God of steadfast love and faithfulness. And we bow down before you, You're our Lord. You're the King of all kings. 
And as a demonstration of your power, the power of your word, Lord, we know that every knee will bow, every tongue will confess someday that Jesus is Lord of all. All the kings of the earth shall give thanks to you. But even while the most prideful and powerful will someday be unable to deny your glory, we give thanks to you that you, the high and lofty one, the one full of glory, that you right now promise that you have regard for the lowly. You're the one who is near to the brokenhearted. And we need this reminder right now. Many of us walk in the midst of many troubles. There's many here who are sick and even battling long illnesses of all varieties, Lord. We need you to be near to us. Have mercy on us. There's many of us here who have broken relationships with those who mean the most to us. It's a spouse, it's a child, it's a parent, an old friend. Lord, we need to know your nearness to us. Have mercy on us. There's many of us who are are walking into fearful seasons of life, graduating, leaving one certain place into a new uncertain place, or sending off a a loved one, a son or a daughter or a brother or sister or a grandchild, off into a new uncertain future. And so for these people and many others among us, we desperately need to know your nearness. So now we just ask that you would fulfill your purpose for each of us this morning. Don't forsake the work of your hands. Do not forsake your people. By your steadfast love, meet us this morning. Speak to us through your word. Heal us and guide us by your exalted name and your exalted word. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You can be seated. Well, you may have noticed that we're jumping actually right into the middle of Paul's letter to the Ephesian church, right? Pastor Terry, very wisely, he, he, he preached last week, and very wisely, each time he's, he's taught for I don't know how long, he's just been going through the next passage in 1 Thessalonians. He started with 1 Thessalonians 1.1. 1, 1. I don't remember when that was. You can ask him. But each time he's preached, just picked up right where he left off. A lot of wisdom there. You're never jumping into the middle. I have less wisdom. We are jumping into the middle of a passage this morning, right? We're jumping into the middle of Paul's letter to the Ephesian church. And we're not just jumping into the middle of his letter. If you're really paying close attention, you will see that we're jumping into the middle of a paragraph in the middle of the letter, right? Our sermon scripture, verse 7 of chapter 4, starts with the conjunction but. And, and, you, and you know what conjunctions do, right? You've heard that fantastic classic song, Conjunction, Junction, what's your function, right? What do they do? They hook up words and phrases and clauses. So that means that we are coming, we're, we're looking right, right at the middle of the train, right? We're trying to jump on board a moving train by jumping in to verse 7, getting in here. We are boarding at Conjunction Junction, which means there's something important that's come before that, that, that dictates the meeting on what's happening here. And so to overcome this beginning in the middle problem, to overcome this problem of getting on board at Conjunction Junction, it's tempting but not practical to review the whole letter up to this point. We just can't do that. 
But there is a few important things you do need to know about Paul's letter to the Ephesians up to this point. There's real generically, chapters 1 through 3 are all about the spiritual blessings that have been lavished on us by God in Christ. Right? Ephesians 1.3 says it memorably and uh, really kind of comprehensively. Ephesians 1.3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who's blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. And the rest of chapter 1 and even going into chapter 2 just unpacks that. We get to see what all of those spiritual blessings are. So like, for example, in chapter 2, we get to see that one of those spiritual blessings is the fact that we are moved, we are, we are raised from spiritual death to spiritual life. It's a real famous passage, Ephesians 2, 1 through 7, reminds us that you, you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that's now at work in the sons of disobedience, among who we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy because of the love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you've been saved. And raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. What are the spiritual blessings? Made alive with Christ. Raised us up with him. Seated us with him in the heavenly places. And Paul even goes on in chapter 2 to explain the implications of these blessings or to draw out more blessings. That as we're made alive together in Christ... We really are made alive together. We're united into an unlikely new family that even describes as as one body or even as the the, the temple, the living temple of God. Look to how how Paul describes this in chapter 2, starting in verse 17. He says, Christ came and preached peace to you who were far off and preached peace to those who were near. For through him, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being built, being joined together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. What are the spiritual blessings we get? Made alive into this living temple of God. And we, we could go in more. It's, there's so much there. It's tempting to just keep on going into the riches of Ephesians chapter 1 to 3, but we just don't have time. We have to get to chapter 4, because chapter 4 marks a big transition in the letter. Chapter 1 through 3, Paul's doing a lot of informing us. He's telling us these deep theological truths. And then in chapters 4 through 6, he's really telling us how to live out and apply and live in line with these truths that he shared in the first three chapters. And so what we see in verse 1 of chapter 4 is really the main command that hangs over all of chapters 3 through 6 or 4 through 6. In verse 1, he says, I, therefore, a prisoner of the Lord, I 
urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called. Right? I spent three chapters helping you understand the calling to which you've been called. Now you need to, I'm calling you to, and urging you to walk in a manner worthy of that calling. And he even begins unpacking what that might look like. You do that with all humility and gentleness. With patience, for example, bearing with one another in love. You're eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. And then he even gives kind of theological backing to that call for unity in verse 4. Verses 4 to 6, right? This is the train car that comes right before the train car we're hopping on here. In our passage this morning, where he says in verses 4 through 6, Why should you live united? Why should you pursue unity? Why should you be so eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace? Because there is one body, one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. What word did you notice emphasized in that passage? It was subtle. No, one body, right? One, 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 one. It sounds like a cheerleader, right? This is, there are spiritual blessings. Bring us into comprehensive unity with with, with God and with each other. So we should be seeking to pursue that unity. And that's what finally brings us to verse 7, where our our passage for this morning actually begins. Here, Paul clarifies that the unity, the deep unity we have, the oneness that he just described, that unity is not uniformity. As as we've come to this conjunction-junction, it's worth looking at what is the conjunction that's there in verse 7. Right? It was, but grace was given. Right? Paul is giving kind of a contrast, a clarification. I said this, but don't forget this. Grace was given to each of us, each one of us, according to the measure of Christ's gift. Yes, there is one Lord, one faith. There is one Oneness defines us, but also it is given by Christ in different ways. And so I love how, how uh, Bible teacher, author, John Stott summarized this. He came to this point in the letter and he said, we're not to imagine that every Christian is an exact replica of every other. You might get that impression from reading verses 4 through 6. Right? Because of our oneness, that we're just a replica of every other. As if we all have been mass-produced in some celestial factory. On the contrary, the unity of the church, far from being boringly monotonous, is exciting in its diversity. Right? Verses 4 to 6 are all about all of us having one unified identity. But verses 7, all the way through 16, what we'll get through next week, is all about the particulars, all about the each one of us. Right? For all of our oneness, there is a great variety in the gracious gifts that Christ has given us. 
We all have received grace. We all need the exact same saving grace. The only sufficient basis of your salvation, my salvation, every Christian who's ever lived is the grace given us through Jesus' death in our place on the cross. That's the one source. But the way, the, the, the gifts, the spiritual gifts that Paul can call grace here can look so incredibly different. In fact, Paul's making the point that each Christian has received some gracious gift that was not given to others. You were given, as a Christian, a gracious gift that was not given to the other people in your row. Paul makes this point in some other places, and we'll dive more into this next week, but in another place like 1 Corinthians 12, Paul seems to be making almost this exact same point, that we have one source of our unity, but it shows itself in this incredible diversity. Just listen to 1 Corinthians 12, verses 4 to 11. You'll hear many of these same themes. He says, Now there are varieties of gifts, but the same Spirit. And there are varieties of service, but the same Lord. And there are varieties of activities, but the same God who empowers them all in everyone. To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. For to one is given through the Spirit, for example, the utterance of wisdom. To another, for example, the utterance of knowledge according to the same Spirit. To another, faith by the same Spirit. To another, gifts of healing by the one Spirit. To another, the working of miracles. To another, prophecy. To another, the ability to distinguish between spirits. To another, various kinds of tongues. To another, the interpretation of tongues. All these are empowered by one and the same Spirit who apportions to each one individually as he wills. Paul makes this, again, this brings up almost the exact same point in Romans chapter 12, verses 3 through 8. Summarized probably well in verse 6, where he says that having gifts that differ according to the grace given of us, let us use them, if prophecy, for example, in proportion to our faith, if service in our serving, the one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. All sorts of different gifts given by the same giver. It's the theme Paul returns to many, many times. As John Stott said, the unity of the church, far from being boringly monotonous, is exciting in its diversity. Next week we'll dive into this more deeply. But just recognize that each Christian, so that means you, each Christian, that means you if you're sitting here as a genuine believer, are given a non-repeatable, non-mass-produced gift of grace from Christ according to his personal distribution. Grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. So we move on to verse 8. We keep on reading in verse 8. Paul continues, he says, Therefore it says, 
When he ascended on high, he led a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. My guess is that as you look down in your Bible, uh, it's pretty clear that Paul's quoting something, right? Just by the way it's inset and kind of just formatted a little bit differently, there's a quote going on here. And in this verse, in verse 8, Paul is quoting Psalm 68. That's where the quote comes from. And Paul seems to see a connection between the fact that Christ gives gifts of grace and Psalm 68. Some reason or other, there's a connection in his mind. Or maybe a better way to put it is this. Paul thinks that bringing up Psalm 68, or pointing us back to Psalm 68, will help us understand the significance of Christ's gifts. That's why he brings up Psalm 68, specifically verse 18. Psalm 68, it would be worth actually your time, you know, if you could maybe stick one finger in Ephesians and then go back to Psalm 68 or, um, you know, maybe one person next to you can do Ephesians, one person next to you can do Psalm 68. You can figure it out there on the fly, but to be looking at both Ephesians and Psalm 68 would be really helpful right now. Because um, Psalm 68 is what we'd call a victory song. There's many victory songs in, in Scripture, a lot of times in the Old Testament, there'll be a battle and they'll get the recounting of the battle. And then the next chapter after that battle will be a song recalling the battle in poetic form, celebrating God's victory. And then as you go through the Psalms, there's many of these, these songs as well. They're just celebrating God's victory. And this is, this is one of those Psalms. It's a victory song. Or in some ways, it's a, what we might call a montage or a medley, right? There's all sorts of stories alluded to and kind of connected together about God's victories for his people from the time of the Exodus all the way through the time that David wrote this, probably at the time the Ark of the Covenant's being brought into Jerusalem. Right? And we see that. We see that declaration of confidence in God's victory right there in verses 1 and 2. It says In the ESV, at least it says, God shall arise... His enemies shall be scattered, and those who hate him shall flee before him. As smoke is driven away, so you shall drive them away. As wax melts before fire, so the wicked shall perish before God. Right? A strong declaration. This strong declaration of confidence in God's victory. And it's worth noting, though, that this, these verses here are linked back to Numbers 10.35. So it's almost like we're navigating a web page. We clicked on a link in Ephesians 4 that sent us back to Psalm 68. And then there in Psalm 68, we click on another link, and that sends us to Numbers 10.35, where we're told that these words that in Psalm 68, verses 1 and 2, were also the words said by Moses, and probably later leaders as well, when the Ark of the Covenant was brought out and traveled with God's people. Right? When they had the Ark of the Covenant with them, they went out confident that God, who had rescued them out from underneath Pharaoh and out from Egypt, would bring them safely to the land of promise, just like he'd said. The Ark of the Covenant was meant to be a reminder of his steadfast love and faithfulness on behalf of his people. So Psalm 68 is celebrating God's victories along the way. So for example, say in verses 7 and 8, we'll hear, Oh God, 
When you went out before you people, when you marched through the wilderness, the earth quaked, the heavens poured down rain. And again, this picture of God marching with his people, providing everything they need, conquering their enemies that on their own they're too small to handle. But the climax of the the whole psalm comes right in the middle. Verse 18. It seems like there's there's an enthronement verse suddenly. Right? You're not fighting battles anymore. You've won the war. So Psalm 68, verse 18. David writes, You ascended on high, leading a host of captives in your train and receiving gifts among men, even among the rebellious. But the Lord God may dwell there. Right? God is reigning on his throne. He's led his people. That's what David is celebrating. Right? He, like I mentioned, he probably wrote this when the Ark of the Covenant was being brought into Jerusalem. So it's this big, dramatic moment, this culmination of a multi-century march of God with his people out of Egypt into their own kingdom to have rest from their enemies. But Paul reads this, and he seems to see something even bigger going on. He seems to see this as that, that march of the Ark from the wilderness into Jerusalem. It's just a shadow of something even more substantial. Something even better than the Ark of the Covenant entering the earthly sanctuary has happened. Paul knows that the anointed king, God's Christ, has ascended to the heavenly sanctuary, just as we heard read to us from Acts chapter 1, verses 9, 10, and 11, right? He ascended up. They were looking up into heaven. He ascended. And so Paul even unpacks that, say, early in, in Ephesians 1.20. He talks about how God raised Christ from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. So in, in, in Paul's eyes, Psalm 68 is not ultimately about the victorious ascension that the Ark of the Covenant made when it was brought to Jerusalem. No, much more than that. Psalm 68 helps us understand God's victory in Christ. And thanks be to God, the victorious king gives gifts. But we need to pause for a moment, regroup, wondering, how closely have you been paying attention? Did you notice any differences between Paul's quotation of Psalm 68:18 and Ephesians 4:8? And what your Bible has printed in Psalm 68, 18? Look down. Are there any differences? I'll give you, give you a moment. There's a few minor differences, right? Psalm 68, 18 directly addresses God, right? You ascended on high. While Paul's reference you know, makes a description. When he ascended on high, the verb tenses are slightly different too, right? Uh, leading a host of captives, it says in Psalm 68, versus Paul's quotation said, he led a host of captives. You know, those differences and maybe a few others aren't really a big deal. You know, Paul and the New Testament writers, they're, they're often not, not quoting verbatim, they're, they're referencing back. Um, and they're, they're even applying it. And, and so they're, you know, they're free to kind of smooth it out, kind of make it fit in their spot without changing the meaning one bit. But there's one big difference. I hope you spotted it. 
Psalm 68, 18 says that the Lord was receiving gifts among men, while Ephesians 4, 8, Paul's quotation of that verse, says he gave gifts to men. Receiving versus giving. That's not just like a minor, like, I'm going to change the verb tense to kind of smooth it out for my situation here. Right? That's not a simple matter of changing like second person to third person so that it's clear, which kind of gives us the uncomfortable feeling. Like, did Paul switch the meaning? I mean, receiving and giving, that's opposite. If we were playing the opposite game and said, give me the opposite of giving, you might say receiving. Give me the opposite of receiving, giving, right? That's completely to twist the meaning, it seems like. Um, so to deal with this problem, you could you know, spend a lot of time trying to unpack, what is he, what's going on here? Some people uh, you know, accuse Paul of simply being forgetful. You know, he misquoted the psalm. Oopsie, but scripture now, so we've got to kind of deal with it. Um, other people have claimed that Paul's, he's just playing fast and loose with the Old Testament. He didn't really care what it said, but if he changed it just this one word, he can make it work for him. That doesn't seem uh, to really fit with how we understand the role of God's word and what it means to be an apostle. Um, right? You can't get the right doctrine from the wrong text uh, just because it's the right doctrine. Um, others maybe just appealed, well, okay, Paul, I don't even remember, he's an apostle with the authority of Jesus, right? That's not what Psalm 68 says. But with the authority of Jesus behind him, by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he has authority to change Psalm 68 around if it fits his situation. So he can do it, but you definitely don't want to learn how to read Scripture from him because you can't do that. Worst implication being the worst place to learn how to read the Bible is from the Bible. That doesn't seem to work. That's not a good explanation. I, I, I think all of these are just two times too complicated. No. Paul's not quoting Psalm 68, 18 word for word. Of course not. He's summarizing and applying this psalm for us in light of Christ, in light of the full meaning of the whole psalm. Right? The move from receiving gifts from men to giving gifts is exactly what we'd expect to happen if we were reading the whole psalm. All right, just think about this. What happens when a commander and king goes out and defeats another army? Does he receive anything from his defeated foes? Yes. All sorts of tokens and bounty come from defeating another army. That's often the whole point. Is what can I get from defeating this army? So a conquering king who's ascending like God is, is yeah, you can talk about them receiving gifts as a, a sign that they are victorious. The victorious commander is the one who receives gifts from the defeated foes. But the full meaning of Psalm 68 is not just celebrating the fact that God conquers his enemies. It's God defeating his enemies on behalf of his people. All throughout the psalm. It's the ones who, without God on their side, would be totally helpless, who are receiving blessing through their king's victory. Right? When a commander or king wins a battle, what benefit does that give to the king's people? 
Well, if he's a good king, all sorts of benefits come back to the, his people. Right? The victorious king receives gifts from his captives. That's a sign of his victory. But with those same gifts, he gives to his people. Both receiving and giving are a part of the victory. And simply an application of the saying he received, when you're saying he give, he gave them, it's just, it's just an application of that. Right? Just think about this fact. Think about the famous story of David and Goliath. David kills Goliath, cuts off his head, He's got Goliath's sword, the conqueror. What has he received from his vanquished foe? A sword. Probably too heavy for him, but a sword nonetheless. It was a sign of his victory. He'd received something from his, wasn't even a captive, simply his enemy who he'd now killed. So what happens? David just gets to hold on to that sword for, his, for himself for the rest of time? No, who, when, that story come, when that sword comes back up, who has possession of it? All of God's people. Right? It's been given to them. It's in their possession. Right? Their king received something from those he conquered so that he can give it to his people. So Paul brings up Psalm 68 here to help us understand that the gifts we receive in all their various forms, they're signs of our Lord's victory. He has been raised far above all rule and authority and power of dominion. If you're seeing spiritual gifts given to people in the church, you're being reminded that Jesus is Lord, that he has risen and ascended in victory we see reminders of his victory everywhere. We see spiritual gifts at work. Finally, finally, we see that Christ ascends in victory because he descended in humility. So verses 9 and 10 draw our attention to. In saying he ascended... What does it mean but that he had also descended into the lower regions, the earth? He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens, that he might fill all things. And these verses, as you may know, have have, uh, been the source of some confusion and contention over the years. Uh, The confusion has to do with where Christ descended. You may not be, uh, you may not have caught this opportunity for confusion if you have the ESV or the NIV. Um, they simply say, in, a, in saying he ascended, what does it mean? But that he had also descended into the lower regions, comma, the earth. Or in the NIV, the lower earthly regions. Earth is simply a contrast to the, to the heavens according to this translation. But if you have something like the King James, the NISB, or plenty of other translations, they're not going to kind of explain things for you quite as clearly. They'll simply say, he descended into the lower parts of the earth. But that kicks up the question. Which parts of the earth are its lower parts? Maybe you have a particular city or state that comes to mind, but I don't think that's 
the point that he's getting at here? No, what, what are its lower parts? Is it, is it hell, right? Maybe you've, you've heard of this idea that Christ somehow uh, went, went, in hell, went to hell while he was in the grave, right? It's become common to connect this verse with a few other odd verses that we come across and their meaning might not be apparent to us immediately. Something like 1 Peter 3, 18, where we read that, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit, verse 19, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison. And you read that. I don't quite know what that means. For Christ also suffered once for sins. I'm following along with that. I've heard that before. But then you get to verse 19. In which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison. I'm confused. Uh, I'll just keep reading. But then you get to First Peter chapter 4, and you, re- you get to verse 6, and you hear... For this is why the gospel was preached even to those who are dead, that though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the spirit the way God does. And you just kind of don't understand this. And, but you're like, well, I, I want to try and make sense of this. So you start putting together this reference to the gospel being preached to those who are dead and something about Christ proclaiming the spirits in prison. And then you go back to this reference that maybe we're, there's some sort of lower, he descended into the lower regions of the earth. Maybe that's the spirits in prison who are dead. And you, you, you kind of get on this grand adventure of speculation, but I think it's a grand adventure in missing the point. Paul does not bring up the lower regions of the earth to hint at some incredible and complex, but mostly hidden, reality about, reality about what Christ did on Easter Saturday while he was in the grave. The clear point in this context is to contrast the lower place he descended to with the high place he's been exalted to. Right? It's a contrast between Christ's heavenly exaltation of his exaltation as ruler and Lord and his descent down to earth to live as a man of sorrows. So I, that's why I like those NIV and ESV translations. You might say, oh, they're interpretive. Uh, they're, they're, they're overstating uh, what making something overly clear, but I, I think they're just helping us. They're cutting off a lot of confusion, saving us from being distracted and directing us to the main point that Paul is getting at here. Right? Paul, in some other places, gets at this same truth in what I would consider a much more poetic form. This idea that he descended is the same point he's making in Philippians 2, 6, 8, when he says that Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being in the likeness of men, and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. He descended. Similarly, 2 Corinthians 8, 9. You know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. That though he was rich, right? Rich in eternal glory. Yet for your sake, he became poor. He descended. Right? That little phrase here in, in, in Ephesians 4, he descended. 
is a short summary of something that's so incredible that our Bible takes four books to flesh out, right? The, the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are all exploring this same idea. He descended in his birth. He descended, right? God the Son, God, eternal God of glory, worthy of all praise, was born of a woman with a tarnished reputation. And as an infant, he borrowed an animal's feeding trough to be his crib. Right? Luke 2.7, Mary gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger. From heaven to a manger, he descended like the way John puts it in John 1, 9 through 12, where he reminds us that the true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world, the world was made through him. Yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. Right? He descended. Even the hour for which he came was the most humiliating of all. He's mocked. He's beaten. Any honor sent his way is sarcastic at best. Between the robe and the crown and the sign, king of kings, right? That is all just in mocking jests. He descended. But he knew who he believed, and he knew how to endure. I'm so helped by the way John, uh, Jesus puts it in John chapter 12. As he's come to his moment of humility, right? The, the deepest part of his descent is right in front of him. And he's able to admit in verse 27 of John 12, he says, Now is my soul troubled. Right? His descent has been hard. He has truly descended into the lower regions. But he goes on. Jesus says, And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. Save me. From this descent? No. But for this purpose I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it and I will glorify it. And as we'll see here, right? This, this nadir of his descent, the absolute bottom moment of his earthly ministry is actually the moment of his glorification, of his ascent, where it begins. That's why Jesus continues. As there's all this confusion, the crowd stood there. They'd heard that voice from heaven. And they'd, some said, oh, it just thundered. Others said, an angel has spoken to him. And Jesus answered, this voice has come for your sake, not mine. Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. Right? Now, as in this moment where he's about to be betrayed and arrested and crucified and mocked and placed in a grave. Now, at that moment, is when the ruler of this world will be cast out. Now is when I will conquer. And when I am lifted up from the earth... Does he mean the cross or does he mean the ascension? When I am lifted up from the earth. He's bringing them right together. 
when I'm lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. And he said this to show what kind of death he would die. See, Jesus knew where his crucifixion was leading. He descended to be lifted up. He was lifted up to be exalted. He died to be glorified. He descended so that he would ascend far above all the heavens, that he might fill all things. And now, as that conquering king, the one who has ascended, he gives gifts of grace to you. He reigns so that you may receive grace from him. In love, he reigns, so we praise him. In love, he descended, so we follow his example. In love, he gives gifts, so receive them and use them with thankfulness. We are the people of the victorious king who, when he ascended on high, led a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. Pray with me. Father, we praise you that you have not left us alone. We are sinners who deserve wrath. But we are now your people who have received gracious gifts from our victorious king who died in our place. Make us ones who live truly underneath his reign. Put it on display for each other in the world to see. Make us ones who use these gifts for your glory. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.